to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm your host, Rick Lee. And as usual, I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Lee M. Johnson and Dr. Charles Peterson. We're talking about democracy and crisis this week. Charles Noel wants to know what you're drinking, and we want to know what you're ranting or raving about. Well, I will be having a Tito's and soda with a splash of cranberry juice because I need something that's just completely refreshing to battle this summertime heat. I am raving about the new Michelle Yeoh film, Everything Everywhere at Once. I've watched it two times in the past week. I will probably watch it three more times in the coming week. It just blows your mind. I know that's a cliche term, but it just explodes the possibilities of what can be done with film. It amazingly features not just her physical martial arts talents, but as well her depth as an actress. And it's a really profound and heartfelt story at the center of it all, one that I think we really need to hear and embrace. So I am raving about everything, everywhere at once. Please go see this film. It's amazing. Nice. Lee? I would like to have, I don't even know if this is chemically possible, but if I could get her to make a slushy made out of bourbon, that's what I want. <laughs> I don't even know if that's a thing, but I would just like to call out to all of the bourbon makers, figure out a way to freeze that shit because it's too hot. <laughs> and relatedly, I am ranting this week and I'm ranting about the Biden administration dragging its feet on declaring a climate change emergency. <laughs> Yesterday, when we're recording this, Biden's press secretary said, we understand that this is a real problem and we're getting to it, but we just don't think this is the time to declare a climate emergency. Show me the data. <laughs> On what basis is this not the time to declare a climate emergencies? So yeah, that's my rant. Rick, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? I just discovered a new cocktail called the Summer Treacle, I think it's pronounced, or Treckle. It's basically an old-fashioned, but you swap out the whiskey for dark rum. This week, I am ranting about former Vice President Mike Pence. So everybody, grab a pillow. This is going to be a while. <laughs> I, I'm sure this is not the first time somebody on this podcast has ranted about Mike Pence. But in particular, I'm ranting about his call at a recent speech on every state to outlaw abortion and also a call on major corporations to support adoption rather than support travel for women who want to seek abortions in states where they still have constitutional rights. Hey, Linda Alkoff just walked in. Hey, Rick. What are you doing here? <laughs> Lee, I think you know Linda. Why don't you introduce us to her and tell us why she's here today? Yeah, well, Linda and I have been friends for about 20 years now. And as I normally do when one of my friends walks into a bar and I'm sitting with others of my friends, I have an introduction prepared, as a matter of fact. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Linda Alkoff is a professor of philosophy at Hunter College in the Graduate Center CUNY and the co-director of the Mellon Public Humanities and Social Justice Program there. Her research areas include epistemology, Latin American philosophy, feminism, critical race theory, and continental philosophy. And 
And she regularly publishes in both academic journals and the popular press. She's edited or co-edited 11 books. And because she's really just too prolific for me to read all of her titles, I'll just mention her three most recent books, Rape and Resistance, which was published by Polity in 2018, The Future of Whiteness, which was published also by Polity in 2015, and Visible Identities, Race, Gender, and the Self, which was published by Oxford in 2006, and which won the Franz Fanon Award. Over the last 20 years that I've known Linda, we've had many, many conversations in many, many bars. And I can confirm that in addition to being a good friend and a world-renowned philosopher, She's also wildly interesting and wickedly funny. So, Linda, welcome to the Hotel Bar. We want to know what are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about this week? Thanks, Lee. You make me blush, but um, it's really (laughs) nice to see you again. I'm getting a Paloma, please. Nice. You know, Palomas, it's been my drink for a while because I'm really on a tequila thing. But, you know, more Mexicans in Mexico drink Palomas than margaritas. People don't always realize that. And it's just such a great summer drink, even though it's not grapefruit season. It's made with grapefruit, lime, a little club soda, and the best tequila you can afford. Can you freeze it? Because I'll have (laughs) (laughs) There are frozen Palomas, yes. (laughs) Sold. Yeah. So you want a rant? I'm ready to rant. Although my rant has been not just today or this week or this month, but it's like most of my adult life. But I'm hearing the word America get used a lot these days as they're covering the hearings and talking about American democracy and American institutions and America, 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 meaning the United States instead of the Americas. (laughs) You know, there are other countries in the Americas, the United States. It dominates, but it's not exclusive to the United States. So it just drives me crazy that we can't get through our heads that the United States is one country. I know it's more syllables, but please. (laughs) We have a word in Spanish for a United States person, estado anadenza. There's no word in English for that. So we don't know what to say when we're talking about somebody from the United States. You have to use this whole phrase. But we got to get with the program here and recognize we're one of many. So, Lee, I know we're talking about democracy and crisis this week, but what in particular are we talking about and why now? Let me start with the why now, because a year and a half ago, as we all know, as an angry armed mob stormed the U.S. Capitol building in what was thankfully an unsuccessful insurrection attempt, many of us who were watching these events unfold on television asked ourselves, is democracy itself in peril? Now, this is, of course, a question we should have been asking for many years prior to January 6, 2021, but it is a question that we should still be asking. So currently at the federal level, we have an activist and regressive Supreme Court that's aggressively chipping away at the rights of citizens and an almost perpetually stalemated Congress that refuses to act on real existential threats like climate change, COVID, systemic racism, and income equality. And at the state level, More than half of the legislatures have restricted voting rights, gun regulation, and protections for black, indigenous, and people of color, women, members of the LGBTQ plus community, and the poor. And all of the state legislatures 
are busy gerrymandering districts, underfunding public education, overfunding police, and extending corporate welfare tax benefits, while at the same time refusing to raise the minimum wage for workers, mitigate the affordable housing crisis, repair crumbling infrastructure, or exhibit even the most minimally decent concern for the good of their citizens. Meanwhile, the average U.S. citizen is sick, indebted, demoralized, and underinformed or misinformed, and disillusioned with the entrenched and corrupt political class. So we really can't blame them for asking, why vote? Why care? What has democracy done for me lately? So today, we're going to be talking about those perils that democracy is facing, how we should think about them, and what, if anything, we can do about them. So we're so glad to have you here today because I know that you yourself have been an on-the-ground soldier in the culture wars. And as much as I hate the phrase culture wars, I do want to ask you what role do you think these so-called culture wars are playing in the perils to democracy today? Well, they're obviously playing a huge role. If you listen to right-wing or conservative media, they spend a lot more time talking about cultural war issues than they do talking about the lack of unionization, the poverty, the climate crisis, and some other things that you just ran through. So it's clear that these issues are a diversion, they're a distraction, they are opportunistically promoted by conservatives who want to show as a shiny object rather than looking at the structural crises of our economy and our political institutions. All of that is true. And yet, and yet, what I really want to argue is that although cultural issues are distractions and opportunistic strategies of the right, they're also at the center and legitimately at the center for us to have a national conversation about. And this is just to follow a point that Edward Said, the great Palestinian theorist and writer, made many years ago when he argued in his book Culture and Imperialism that culture is the terrain on which politics is fought. And you can see this in the invasion of Ukraine today that Putin is claiming that Ukraine is not a sovereign nation, despite the fact they have a state, they have political institutions, none yeah. of that matters, because sovereignty is about the inner energy of a people. It's about peoples and cultures. And Putin is claiming that the Ukrainian culture is derivative, it's connected, it's overlapping, it's not its own autonomous thing. And Trump has picked this up. He made a couple of speeches last year, earlier this year, talking about sovereignty in a similar way, that sovereignty is based on an inner energy of a people. And this is a popular idea among global conservative forces in the world today. And you can think about this as the willingness of people to go to war, the willingness of people to have each other's back, the sense of belongingness. It's like a substitute for blood and soil. Yeah. Well, blood and soil is what gives rise 
to this sense of connectedness that they want, this belongingness. But the cultural issues like LGBTQ rights and abortion and other issues like that are seen as demoralizing the U.S. population, splitting them, making us lose our inner energy, lose our cohesiveness, our moral fiber, our sense of united purpose. And so I think it's true that the conservatives use these cultural issues in an opportunistic way as diversionary tactics. But it's also true, as Saeed says, these actually are important issues. What is it that grounds our nation, quote unquote? That was a very thematically timed police siren that we heard as you were saying that. It's the sounds of Brooklyn. I can't, you know, completely shut those out. (laughs) You did mention the very real problems that the society is facing. So if we could explore that a little bit more, like people just don't wake up one day and say, oh, I'm alienated. So therefore, I'm going to embrace this idea of inner energy. Can we talk about some of the things that are actually working against people's sense of self, sense of connectedness, sense of linkage to a larger identity and community? Yes, I think the economy has a big role because people feel precarious and are precarious. They don't just feel precarious. They actually are precarious. I saw statistics this week that said two-thirds of people in the United States are living paycheck to paycheck. Two-thirds. Yeah. And 41% are poor or low income. I think if we had democracy, that would not be the case, right? That's that's the crisis of democracy right there. So that gives people a need for an explanation, a need for blame, a need for some kind of solution, no matter how unbelievable it might be, something to look at. But I think we need to think about the underlying causes of the crisis, of the rise of conservatism. And, you know, this is not what you get on MSNBC or CNN. They look at the tactics of January 6th. They're focused, you know, almost exclusively on the tactics. They're looking at chaos and they're not thinking about what are the underlying causes, which is exactly your question, Charles. And what are those underlying causes? You know, I think we have to go deep. And I think the underlying causes are the fact that the United States is now the emperor with no clothes. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have claimed we're this great democratic nation, one of the first claimed a right to this expansive territory. Biden continues to claim the right to dominate global politics On what basis is that claim really justified? It's not justified. I think the reckoning that we've been doing for the last few years, really just a few years, with slavery is just the beginning. You know, people are really having trouble reckoning with that. But we've also got the settler colonialism and neocolonial relationships with other countries from which we draw our resources. And I just don't believe that people are as stupid as a lot of the conservatives and the liberals believe they are. I think there is an understanding among wide swaths of the public that we're built on a house of cards in terms of the way in which we characterize the United States as this great country that's always been this great country in which slavery and colonization and genocide against the indigenous was kind of a blip, a sideline issue. And it's just not the case. And these young historians <laughs> that are just showing us how important the plantation economies were, 
how important our colonization has been of other countries. Daniel Emmerwar's book, How to Hide an Empire. Mm. The United States doesn't think of itself as an empire. And he shows us historically and on the map how many territories we have controlled and dominated, including my own in Panama, which was dominated for a 100 years on the grounds that we we built the canal. Who really built the canal? Right, talking right. about who really built the canal? <laughs> I'm guessing that the Panamanians have receipts for that. And populations across the Caribbean. A lot of people from the quote-unquote West Indies built the canal. There were Asians who built the canal. There were indigenous people who built the canal. So there's a long history here. I think we have to begin to talk about that. We have to begin to talk about on what grounds do we have a right to this territory and what can we do once we face the facts of our history, the truth of our history, and don't accept being dupes anymore? Because I don't think people really want to be dupes. What do we do at that point? What can we do about it? But one of the problems, I think, in confronting that history and being honest about the actual history is that that's one of the things that's contested as part of the so-called culture wars. Mm -hmm. And so we can't think about an honest presentation of our history and a confrontation with it when that's one of the things that's up for grabs. And so then this is where I get pessimistic when I start thinking, okay, what would be the solution to our history not being up for grabs? And part of what I'm wondering is, how much does the role of a professional political class play in this? Because for all of the fact that slavery was a feature, not a bug, for all of the fact that the genocide of indigenous populations, again, was a feature, not a bug of American democracy and emerging capitalism, all of the early presidents, senators, representatives, they treated public service as a burden. And we've talked on this podcast before. I wonder what would happen if all of these were a lottery, like jury duty, right? You know, Linda, you'd get in the mail, you're now chief justice of the Supreme Court, and you'd be like, oh, fuck. <laughs> and you try to get out of it and, and so on. And I wonder, once you have a professional political class, then they now have their own interests, which are neither the interests of, let's say, the aristocracy nor the interests of working class. They now have interests of their own. And these interests of the political class as such are maintained and satisfied by means of this incredible division that can be inculcated among all of us, which has one main effect, and that is it keeps Republican politicians in office in Republican states and districts, and it keeps Democratic politicians in office in Democratic states and districts. Yeah, I think your point shows that rather than thinking that now our democracy is in peril— we haven't really had very much democracy <laughs> since the <Yeah>. beginning, <laughs> right? I, we've had some. I don't want to say we haven't had any, but, we, you know, we really have had a paltry, a weak, limited 
sense of democracy and democratic institutions, especially in terms of real participation of people who are not in the professional political class, as you call it. There's a dynamic here that the professional political class is like a bureaucracy. The point of a bureaucracy is to maintain itself. And even if it's like a temporary committee that's coming into existence to deal with a problem, they'll stretch out the problem for as long as possible so they can continue to get paid. Marx talked about that. So it's a structural problem. But I think besides the structural problem, there is, again, a sense of fatalism and hopelessness. And I'd like to describe this as Jeffersonian skepticism. And the reason I call it Jeffersonian skepticism is because Thomas Jefferson, who was one of the founders of our democracy and wrote some very pro-democracy words, There was a big debate at the end of the 1700s in many countries about whether democracy was even possible. It was crazy to think that democracy was even possible. And reading back what the debates were back then is kind of interesting. And and Jefferson's view was that democracy is possible under certain conditions for certain people. One of the things that he believed was, despite his racism and owning 600 slaves during his lifetime, he believed that slavery was an abomination. And he apparently sincerely believed this because he wrote it in the notes on the state of Virginia, which he didn't intend to publish. So a lot of historians take those notes as actually representing his true views. So he thought it was an abomination and he knew that it was going to end. He was smart enough to know that this is not going to last. And he thought that when it ended, the slaves were going to have to be sent back to Africa. And the reason he thought they were going to have to be sent back to Africa was because he thought we could not create a nation, we could not create unity, we could not create functional political institutions between the formerly enslaved and those who were slavers or who were functionaries for the slave system. And I think that kind of skepticism is still very much with us. And it's because of Jefferson's skepticism I think, and the fact that a lot of other people agreed with him, that we've never really asked the question, how do you create a country with this large a difference of experience with the history of the United States? It's not just people with different religions. It's not just people with different cultures. It's people who have very different experiences with the government with the United States, because slavery was a federal law. It was not just states. It was a federal offense. And the federal government also committed other crimes of colonization, as I mentioned before. So how do you do that? It is understandably a daunting question, and it's still with us, and we still haven't answered it. Hey, We couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. 
Before we recorded this episode, I actually talked to Linda a little bit about it. And I said, this is what we're going to be talking about, democracy in peril. And one of the things that Linda said was, we need a second constitutional Congress. And I said, yes, that's exactly what I say all of the time. So that's not a great minds think alike thing. That's just a, my mind sometimes thinks along with great minds. But do we need a second constitutional Congress? Yes. Right. <laughs> and I, I know you were telling that story so people wouldn't think that you were just feeding me the line. It actually, <laughs> I did say it. I said it when we talked yesterday. Yes. But aren't you worried about how that will be established given the current circumstances we're in? Yeah, of course. My fear would be that the same entities that lobby behind closed doors and the dark money and the super PAC, they would influence and push the deliberations in a certain sort of way. Like you'd have to really start paying attention as to who's the agent of what interests in this new constitutional convention. Because I'm sure the Koch brothers have a rainy day fund for that waiting already to pump dark money into a new constitutional convention to get their ends met. So that would be my fear. That's also my fear, but I think that there might be some guardrails that we could put up against that inevitability. So if we think about the first Constitutional Congress, who were the participants? They were scholars. They were businessmen. They were tradespeople. I mean, they were also slave owners, but there wasn't an established political class already. I think that we could, if we established a second Constitutional Congress, make at least one of the provisions of that Congress that no elected official participate in it. Yeah, I mean, I like the idea of going back to a random ballot a random selection of citizens to participate. But yeah, I agree with that. You can't be someone who already has a certain type of skin in the game. I wouldn't want it to be random. I would want it to be representative in the true sense. So I would want it to have an equal representation of poor people and wealthy people, an equal representation of all the races, an equal representation of men and women, an equal representation of straight and lesbian and bisexual and transgendered and queer people, equal representation of people who are sick, who have, for example, chronic diseases and people who don't. You know what I'm saying? So I think that there are ways to make it actually represent of the concerns of the nation without, for example, a lottery Yeah, draw. and I think we can look to other countries. This is one thing the United States really has trouble doing, <laughs> but <laughs> especially when those other countries are in Latin America or other parts of the global mm -hmm. south. But they've had constitutional conventions. You can look at the outcomes. The outcomes have been very interesting because yeah. the outcomes in Ecuador and Chile have recognized indigenous rights, have redefined the nation as a plural nation as plurinational and have protected other rights. They've been very forward-looking outcomes that have occurred. So we can look to the lessons, positive and negative, that have occurred from constitutional conventions elsewhere. It is always the case that any democratic institution can get gamed I like the idea of having gender quotas, for example, mm -hmm. in legislative bodies, but those can be gamed and are gamed in some other countries so that you have elite women, you have wives of professional political class people. And I want to say here, here from the state that has Marsha Blackburn as a senator. <laughs> right. <laughs> but we can look to others. I think the difficulty in the United States is there's more at stake here than in other countries, because we have so much wealth concentrated in a very small percentage of people 
who have inordinate power over the political process and the media. They have even more at stake than they do in other countries. But I think the way we should see what's going on now is that we really have warring social movements. I think it's a mistake to see the rise of conservatism as what they call grass tops, as just orchestrated from above. It is orchestrated from above. I think the liberal media is a corporate media, Mm -hmm. but I think it's also expressive of precariousness, expressive of political skepticism, expressive of a variety of things that are truly felt by masses of people. So I think we have warring social movements, and that's why we have a democratic crisis, and that's why the legitimacy of elections touches a nerve with so many people. I mean, it touches a nerve on the liberal or the left side, too. Remember Bush v. Gore? Yes. Remember that? (laughs) Stolen election? I mean, it's become, you know, part of the global playbook. But I think the only way to address a democratic crisis is with a democratic method and a democratic solution. Mm -hmm. The idea of a constitutional convention gives an opportunity if it is truly participatory. And it needs to be participatory. It needs to be built from the local, small, rural areas and not just in the cities, not just in the professional political class. It gives us a chance to reach beyond the professional political class. And the bankruptcy of the Democratic Party is really because they figured out with Obama how they could win national elections, building a coalition between a broad swath of people of color and cities. And so they abandoned rural areas, and that's how Trump won. Trump won massive amount of counties, more than Hillary did in the east, west, south, and north. She didn't just lose in the south. She lost everywhere. If you look at counties, because rural counties have been abandoned by the liberal professional political class. And this is why we're in the situation that we're in. We have to contest. We have to engage. We have to organize. And, you know, there's always, to some extent, rural versus city conflicts, but they have to be really addressed in a democratic and open way. So at the risk of pushing this to an incredibly abstract level of theory, (laughs) Linda, you just exposed what I find to be one of the interesting theoretical dimensions of democracy and also one of the interesting theoretical problems with democracy. And I'm not an expert here, but as far as I understand, the only way our current constitution allows for another constitutional convention is either by the consent of Congress or two-thirds of state legislatures. That's not going to happen. Given our current state, it's just not going to happen. And part of the problem is, because of the history of slavery, our current political body is constituted with the state having a tremendous amount of power and authority within the federal system. And so we're not going to get two-thirds of the current states, and we're not going to get whatever the majority in Congress would need. And so there comes a moment in which there has to be a non-democratic movement to establish the legitimacy of the foundation of a new democracy. 
If I could just jump in with another politically wonky point, this is an opportunity for the Democratic Party or the left in general to take advantage of the expanded executive powers that the Republicans have been building over the last really 30 years and have a president that just declares that there is going to be another constitutional Congress. And I think (laughs) it's going to be difficult and that it's going to require some Steve Bannon-esque kind of (laughs) manipulations, but it is possible. We unfortunately have not been able to find a leader on the left that we can put into the Oval Office, and that includes both Obama and Biden, that would even do that because they both believe in bipartisanship, bless their hearts, But I don't think it's impossible to call for a second constitutional Congress outside of the current restrictions of the U.S. Constitution. Notice, Lee, that in your call for executive action, you sort of made my point that we need a non-democratic moment of origin, given our current lack of democracy and the failure of any democratic institution. But that's... The basis of democracy, right, is that it is established in non-democratic ways. And it seems to me in many cases that the reconstitution of a society comes at an incredible moment of crisis where everyone across the society realizes we are ungovernable. We can no longer function in this way. So we have to come to the table, hopefully through peaceful means, but unfortunately too many times it's through militant struggle before the stalemate is understood. And now let's figure out how can we get past this particular moment. I think about the Constitution of South Africa and the ways in which the anti-apartheid movement had become extremely successful by the late 80s and early 90s. And the apartheid regime just had to say, look, we can no longer function in this way. We've become immobilized. We've become a pariah state on the international scene. So now we have to come to the table and begin to make concessions and rethink this society. And it actually has one of the most progressive and one of the most open and inclusive constitutions on the planet. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think it'll take a crisis and we are in crisis already in the United States. Yes. And we know the trend lines. It's yes. going to get worse before it gets better in terms of the economy, in terms of the climate, in terms of the political sphere. We have a civil war going on that's a hot civil war. It's not just a cold civil war at this point. But can we get to a constitutional Congress before it is like an 1860 style civil war? That's the question. I don't know whether it's the case. I think the left should work toward that. And I am worried that the left is not particularly working toward that because we don't have a populist left. We don't have a united front left. We have too often a sectarian left, a dysfunctional left in various ways. You know, I think the issue of wokeness is really aggravating, but I think the reason why it has such power is because it does signal some legitimate problems. Part of what wokeness calls out is hypocrisy, and Mm -hmm. part of what it calls out is elitism. There is elitism in some left social movements and some left writers and theorists today. So we have to figure out how to develop a populist, united front left in which no group can get their full agenda That's what a united front is. You don't get your full agenda, but you'd figure out what kind of partial agenda you can unite around in order to push forward real change that will be class and, right? Instead of 
race alone, gender alone, LGBT alone. It always has to be class and those other elements. And the labor movement has been working seriously on this. Reverend Barber's Poor People's Campaign has been working serious on this. There are sources, they don't get as much media coverage as they should, but there are national forces that are doing this class and kind of unity, and we need to make it even larger and stronger. And I think that will help us deal with some of the internal problems of the left, of excessive purism, excessive internal criticism that blocks our ability to see that people are at different stages of their understanding of different issues. We were all probably at some stupid stage (laughs) on various issues at one point in our lives. You have to realize it takes some time for people to come along and make a broad enough tent to make it possible for people to come in, you know, have some new experiences and develop their own thinking on these different topics. just go back to the perils that democracy is facing and what is the emergency that we need in order to maybe even reach for extra democratic avenues to establish something like a second constitutional Congress. Only in the last three years, I don't know how people have not seen an emergency. You know, I mean, just a year ago, we had 4,000 people a day dying from COVID. A day. We're well over a million people that have died from our non-response to COVID now, and our non-response gets more non-responsive every day. We have, as you said before, two-thirds of the working public living paycheck to paycheck. Most of the country right now is experiencing climate crisis that is literally record-breaking. So, We don't have to look hard for an emergency, right? Like, I personally want to declare a state of emergency. It is a state of emergency. I'm not a sovereign, but it would not be hard for a sovereign at this point to declare a state of emergency and call for unusual measures to address those emergencies. But Lee, don't you think that's exactly what the insurrectionists thought they were doing on January 6th? That they called a state of emergency and they were attempting extra democratic means. I do. And I think that there is a state of emergency surrounding many of the things that they thought the emergency was around, as I've mentioned before, namely a corrupt and entrenched political class. But I think also those same people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th are probably living paycheck to paycheck, Sure, are absolutely overexposed to COVID, suffering the dangers of a crumbling infrastructure, climate change, a expansive and unregulated corporate infrastructure in the United States, all of those things. And yet, I think maybe this is echoing what Linda was saying before, that the Democratic Party doesn't speak well to people who actually are being impacted by the interests that the Democratic Party wants to forward. But one of the differences between someone like me and an insurrectionist is, although I've theoretically grasped the idea that there might have to be a non-democratic origin to democracy, 
it's a non-democratic origin to democracy. Whereas the insurrectionists, it was clear, and this goes back to your rant from the beginning, Linda, they were concerned about America. That meant something to them other than democracy. I'm wondering, can we communicate to a broader public, to use an old-fashioned word, the virtues of democracy, why democracy as such is a value? Right. You know, I'm not sure that I agree that we need a non-democratic origin to democracy, because I do think that democracies were formed on the basis of mass sentiment that maybe was unfocused, maybe was misdirected, but there was mass sentiment that the 13 colonies were not working for most of the colonists, not just the elites. So I think that you may have a legislative move that's made undemocratically, but it is going to work, it's going to function, and it's really responsive to something going on on the ground. And we certainly see a lot going on on the ground in our yeah. society. And if you include social media as part of the ground, which I think you have to, you sure. see earthquakes and volcanoes and hurricanes very much happening. But I think what drove January 6th insurrection was a narrative, actually multiple narratives that were developed to offer an account of what's going on, an account of what's causing the economic crisis, it's global elites, what's causing these various problems, it's the demise of the family and the demise of gender (laughs) conservatism. So the right offered an explanation It has a theory, the replacement theory, which is now accepted by one-third of people in the United States and is touted by Tucker Carlson openly since last September. It has a narrative, it has an explanation, and it has a solution, and the solution is to bring Trump back or somebody like Trump back. And, you know, what does the left have? We have vote for the Democrats. We don't have an explanation. We don't have a narrative. We say you're going to solve the climate crisis by the profit motive in capitalist companies. That's going to solve the climate crisis by privatizing solutions. We're going to solve the pandemic by keeping vaccines from being produced around the world where the pandemics often emerge and then come over here, but we're going to keep them from being able to produce vaccines. All of our solutions are as bankrupt as the right-wing solutions, and we don't have a narrative because we're afraid to open that Pandora's box because of Jeffersonian skepticism and so Mm -hmm. forth. We need to develop an alternative view. We need to develop a contrasting narrative that is as big and is as ambitious, but I think will be better (laughs) than what the right has to offer in terms of what the nature of the crisis is and how we got here and how we can get out of it. We've never been a democracy, right? That's the first thing that we have to contend with. And so if we're going to talk about the narrative that the left has to engage in, that narrative has to be to everyone. I agree, rural voters, conservative populations, to say, look, what you think was a democracy never really was. What you think is democracy was really your control or your sense of having some degree of relative privilege 
So let's say, what is a democracy first of all? And that should be the first message. Because I think the people and those that they represented at January 6th, there is alienation that they experienced. I think they did feel like that they were no longer existing within a society that catered to their needs. But I don't think for them it was a question of let's return to democracy. I think it was a question of how do I hold on to the privilege of power that I thought I had? Well, they want, I think, a heron folk democracy. Right. So they want democracy, yeah. but just right. for white people or just for Christians. You know, it varies depending on which group you're working with. So the, I think they want autonomy. They want self-sovereignty, being able to govern their own actions. But they don't want to include everybody in that. So I think one of the things that we need to change in our political discourse in this country is thinking of democracy as all or nothing or as only one form. That's how we define ourselves as a democracy and many other countries as not democracies who have different forms of democracy, in my view. So we can talk about types of democracy and we can talk about degrees of democracy. And we need to move to that conversation and think about what type of democracy we want to have and how much of it we want to have rather than just all or nothing. There was a hair invoked democracy in 1776, but it certainly was very limited in who was allowed to not only vote, but to participate, right? Because I think if we talk about not just voting, but participatory democracy, that's a much stronger, richer, deeper, higher degree of democracy beyond just voting. And we, we don't even have voting for everybody right now. So on that point, let's imagine that you're a representative or a delegate at this imaginary second constitutional convention. I'm going to ask everybody, what would you propose? Going to you first, Rick. I would propose three things. Term limits on Supreme Court justices, the elimination of the Electoral College, and the elimination of the Second Amendment. Linda? I like that. I think that's good. But I'd also propose that we spend one full year of having small town meetings to generate the agenda rather than putting forward an agenda at this point. I'd really like to have the participatory practices in which people have real input into the discussion and formulate an agenda and then have an elected group try to develop a united agenda based on those small D meetings in rural areas as well as cities. Charles? I would propose a guaranteed right and access to food, shelter, water, and health care. For every citizen. That's awesome. I mean, I agree with all of your proposals. I'm just going to add age limits on public service, and I want upper age limits, not lower age limits. <laughs> so I think that after age, let's say 65, that you cannot be elected as a public official. I agree with that. Hey, listeners, we've got three quick asks from your hosts here at Hotel Bar Sessions. First, if you haven't done so already, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform that you listen to podcasts. Second, hop on over to Twitter and make sure that you followed Hotel Bar Podcast there. We're at Hotel Bar Podcast, and you can find the Twitter handles of all three co-hosts in the bio there. And third, and probably most importantly, we would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to your friends and share our podcast posts on your social media. Now, back to the conversation. 
we've been talking about how January 6th really exposed some fragilities and some vulnerabilities in our system, really the last five or six years. But I want to ask, how close to the edge do people think we are? And if you think we're close to the edge, what type of event do you think would push us over the edge? Well, I think the conservative playbook not only in the United States, but elsewhere, is to use elections. And I think the next presidential election could very well be the one that puts us over the edge because there will be contestation. And what they're doing now is they're setting up the plans for that contestation with the machinery and processes that are getting controlled more at the top and less oversight and so forth. So I think we're going to have probably a contested election and people are not going to back down or give up. We need a game plan. I agree with Linda. I think probably the biggest danger that we currently face is imminent disruption of the constitutional electoral process, like so-called peaceful transition of power, which, you know, we haven't seen in seven years now. But if I could pick something maybe a little further out on the radar, but still quite imminent possibility is I would say that a major climate disaster, whether that's fire, floods, tornadoes, all of which are incredibly likely in the next couple of years, that produced massive climate refugees domestically. I think that could put us over the edge. And then my other thing would be that I do honestly believe that any breakdown in the internet infrastructure in the United States, which also implicates all of our physical infrastructure, would be quite literally devastating and would produce a post-apocalyptic landscape in the United States. Well, and Lee, I think that your last point there about the internet and its infrastructure is way more intimately connected to your climate point than we often recognize. Yeah. A big chunk of Google services and also Facebook services went down because of the extreme heat in England recently. And I think we forget, you know, as I always want to insist, that the internet is stuff. It's material and it's affected by its environment. Yeah, there is no cloud. It's just somebody <laughs> else's machine. Right. And that machine gets really, really hot yeah. and needs to be cooled. And when the electricity goes out, we're screwed. Yeah. You know, I've been thinking a lot lately about the protest outside the steakhouse where Brett Kavanaugh was eating dinner. Bless his heart. <laughs> That's a sign to me that the crisis is already here. I think on all sides, there is a real sense that there is no democratic solution to what we, and it doesn't matter who the we are, what we see as the problem. I think the left thinks there's no democratic solution. I think the right thinks there's no democratic solution. And so I think in many ways, the crisis is already here. I do think that the next presidential election, if something hasn't happened before then, might just be one of those cases. One bizarre moment of optimism I have in relation to that is that the right, in addition to taking ownership over the processes of elections, in addition to making it harder for people of color, poor people to vote, 
it also has been pushing this independent state legislature theory that I think is going to come into play in the next election. And I think that is, first of all, going to be a democratic catastrophe. And I think it is going to be the crisis that might push us to coming up with some real solutions. What about you, Charles? I think the Supreme Court's going to have a hand. The present configuration of the Supreme Court is going to have a hand in pushing us to the next crisis. As they continue down this path of stripping away constitutionally guaranteed rights that people had taken for granted, really at this point for at least two or three generations, as they strip those away, I think a growing sense of desperation is going to arise. The court is delegitimizing itself day by day, minute by minute. And I think there's going to become a faction of people who are just saying, look, if we can no longer trust for the laws to be interpreted fairly, then we will have to assert our own sense of fairness. So I think it's not just going to be the right. I think you may start seeing some very serious militant action coming out of the left as well. Yeah. And if we, which I think we all would agree that at least one axiom of democratic government is government by the rule of law. When the Supreme Court of any nation is compromised, then there is no longer the rule of law. If I could just make one more politically wonky point, I think it might be useful to point out that the mean lifespan of constitutions all over the world since the late 18th century is only 17 years, and only 19% of constitutions survive to age 50, and our constitution has been in effect for 233 years. And as I said to Linda in our conversation before when we were talking about this, if any of the founding fathers, even the worst among them, showed up on my doorstep today, I find it impossible to believe that his first question wouldn't be, so what constitution are you on now? Like they would be shocked that we still are using <laughs> I have a lot of respect for the French and the fact they've had five or six republics. I absolutely think that's a great thing. Like, no, okay, we're not getting it right. Let's try again. Let's continue to configure this idea of freedom, equality, and humanity. Yeah, I mean, I think that is the point that Derrida made in much of his later works, which is that the fundamental phenomenon of democracy is that it is as equally perfectible as it is pervertible. And I feel like we've we've been perverts. <laughs> <laughs> and that's an argument against, you know, skepticism, because these other countries have also had terrible histories, colonial histories, etc. Mm -hmm. And they've done it. They've opened the Pandora's box. They've had a conversation. They've dealt with it. And they've survived as a nation state. So there is cause for hope. I mean, the other thing that I thought was going to get us over the edge has just happened, which is the overturning of Roe v. Wade, because mm -hmm. it affects so many people. It affects yes. men as well as women. I think it's going to cause more poverty and more domestic abuse and more suffering. And I think right now, if I gauge from my students, everybody's kind of depressed and freaked out and going through stage. So it takes time for these things to reverberate and be processed into building new movements with some new mm. narratives and some new languages. But I think this is broad enough and connected to other crisis issues that it will hopefully lead to a new galvanized social movement. has undemocratically asserted last call. Executive privilege. She just implemented the emergency drink order. <laughs> Bartender privilege. 
<laughs> in the new constitution, I will propose a bartender's rights. So while she's fixing our last drinks, Linda, I wanted to ask you, do you have any last thoughts? Well, one thing I think we need to do some more thinking about that we haven't had a chance to talk about, although this has been a really wide-ranging discussion and covered a lot of points, but the right-wing social movement that we're facing in this country that's threatening us takes different forms. Sometimes it's white nationalism, sometimes it's Christian nationalism, but it also is gaining some adherence from various groups of color, so to speak. There's Latinxes that are voting Republican and some African-Americans that are voting Republican. So I think we need to pay attention to this and develop our thinking around this and figure this out rather than seeing it in these overly simplistic racial binaries that have never really existed in this country. We need to break up the white group into classes and other divisions, and we need to think more than we have about the reasons why some groups of color, some people who are not white, are attracted by conservatism for bad and maybe some interesting reasons that we can learn from. Well, one of the ways that we could make this podcast more democratic is if more of our audience would participate in helping us with the real material costs. And if you look at our Patreon levels, you will see that if you contribute at certain levels, you get to contribute ideas and topics and even some of the levels you get to join us on the podcast. What could be more democratic than that? <laughs> That's right, everyone. He says, as he's asking for money. <laughs> well, what says U.S. democracy more than talking about democracy and asking for cash at the same time? Yeah, and if you're interested in helping out this podcast, please do visit our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. I just want to say that, Linda, you could not have been a better guest for this topic, and we thank you so much for joining us Thank you today. so much. Thanks, Great Linda. meeting you. It was a delight. I really enjoyed talking to you guys and drinking at the same time. <laughs> right. Next time, right. right? I need one scotch, one beer, <laughs> and one bourbon. I need two Palomas after this. <laughs> <laughs>